Hi, Kev. How's it going? Hi, Owen. It's great to be back. <laughs> so you got you got two new books out, right? There's, there's, you're getting pretty prolific, right? Was this up to twenty uh, altogether? Nineteen now, I think. I uh, runs in the family, as you know. Um, <laughs> well, there's two of them. The first one was actually came out in the spring, and it's called Memoirs of a Revolutionary, but it's not exactly a biography. It it has stuff in there about my life over the last 50 years. But what it is, is looking at the the development of the modern world over the last 50 years, since 1971 to, to today, and really understanding what is it in the world that created the modern corporate COVID police state and well, looking what, at that. What was it in 71 that, that prompted you to, to begin there? Is that something personal or something global? I use uh, intersect both. I used my experience when I was 15, when I first began to come into really political awareness about the world and everything that year. I had made a trip to Greece and being arrested by the military there when I was 15. And it kind of gave me a, a quick education about the world. But also in that year, it was interestingly right about the same time the, the post-war world economy began to go into a recession. And there was a whole change in the system that happened over subsequent decades starting there. So it was a good date to use in terms of personally and globally, you know, big changes that started, right? Well, what did the, uh, the Greek police spin you for? <laughs> I described it at the start of the book. I was, uh, uh, there with a friend, uh, my friend Charlie Elliott. His mother was an archaeologist and we were out on the island of Lesbos, which is just off the Turkish coast. And we were two young 15-year-old guys kind of hanging around. And I had my camera and I was, I wanted to be an archaeologist. In fact, later in life, I trained in archaeology before I went into the ministry. And uh, I was fascinated. I mean, here's this island just off the Turkish coast with all these old ruins. So I began to climb over walls and take pictures. Next thing I knew, um, this Greek army jeep showed up with three guys with machine guns. Now, at the time, there had been a military coup in Greece in 1967. They had overthrown the government and locked up thousands of their people. In fact, on all these beautiful, idyllic Aegean islands we were passing, there were concentration camps uh, where a lot of political prisoners were held. So I didn't know anything about the military junta uh, in Greece at the time. But these three guys show up with guns. They started yelling at me in Greece because it turns out that they I had crossed over a fence of a military observation point. Because uh, they were watching the Turkish coast, naturally, right? Because they're traditional enemies. Right. And uh, they took me up to this uh, guardhouse and uh, they hand, handcuffed me to a chair. I mean, you know, this was pretty frightening for a young teenage boy from Canada, right? Um, but I kept my cool. They began to talk to me and they realized after a while I was just this, this dumb Canadian tourist. And eventually let me go after stealing my camera, right? Um, but it, it really made me, it was kind of like a cold shower realizing you know, you can have an abstract view of the world, as we've talked about, but when it hits you personally, then uh, you have to wake up to more than what you thought was going on. Right? I feel like there's, there's a, a deliberate um, polarization between, you know, the culture we have with Sesame Street and play school or whatever, you know, in the media and the culture. And, you know, that sort of real world experience that, that you had when you're 15. I mean, it took me <laughs> a little longer to, to get to where you were at that point. But um, well, they, so they suspected that you were uh, perhaps a Turkish spy with a camera. And, and so they, yeah. Yeah, they literally interrogated a 15-year-old, you know, tied him to a chair. Yeah, well, they were talking to me in Greece. They didn't know English. And then after I kept saying Canada, England, you know, and they finally got it. 
and uh, they, they let me go. But uh, it was more like um, after that, I saw the world in kind of a different way, right? It's, uh, I remember the year I went back to Vancouver, that same year, I joined a, a student rights group for the first time. And we began to you know, agitate for equal rights for high school students um, and that kind of thing. And that led me into politics. So it was really a spark. Just like I remember this at, on the same trip, coming around the corner in Athens, and suddenly there was the Acropolis in front of me, right? And uh, it just blew me away. I had this sudden sense of how insignificant I was, right? This little blip in time. And there's all this history. And, and people said, well, that's where democracy began, right? The idea that people could govern themselves. And, and to me, it just all suddenly came together. And, and with, uh, I felt uh, responsible for the first time uh, for things around me, for the world. And, and that, that trip definitely sparked it, right? What, what kind of regime? I, I, you know, again, I, I feel like <clears throat> there's huge gaps in my, uh, my, my historical uh, knowledge. But so Greece from 67 onwards, was this a, a communist uh, regime? No, no, it was a military. There was, um, uh, his name was uh, Papadopoulos. He was a Greek uh, politician. And they were fairly, I mean, mildly left wing. They had brought in some, some measures that their traditional Greek army didn't like. You know, they wanted to pull out of NATO for one thing, right? They wanted more independence and all that. And the CIA organized a coup there in 1967. Um, there's a good film done by it uh, called Z or Zed. Um, and it was about the military junta, uh, coup there. But uh, they ruled until the mid 70s and then the military stepped down and they had, you know, elections for the first time in that. And, um, and, and you know, so I mean, it was just one of these yet another CIA coup that, that led to a lot of repression, right? Right. So, so they could put a, a puppet guy uh, in charge right. and that they could control and coerce. Yeah, it was called General Papadopoulos. And uh, he didn't last more than a few years. But I mean, you know, in Chile or Indonesia or, I mean, they figure the CIA has been responsible for the death of over 20 million people since it was established, right? And then that, that book then uh, develops chronologically right. through the 50 years. What I do in it, Owen, is I, I take it decade by decade. Okay. So I sort of look at the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and kind of in, in the overview, um, you, I can see by tracing it back how when the 1990s arrived, there was this big shift in the system where traditionally, you know, the whole global economy would go through booms and busts. It was kind of like this all the time, right? But every time the, the, the crash happened, the, the, the system, the, the money got more concentrated. The corporations got bigger. So by the time in the 1990s, we had entered the age of the mega corporation where I look at the statistics I list in there show that, um, over half of the biggest economies in the world weren't countries anymore. They were corporations. Right. And there's an amazing statistic by 1990, um, the something like 120 companies controlled the world economy. But they only employed less than 1% of the workforce. So it's like, what do we do with everybody else? Suddenly, all these people in the system are redundant. And that's uh, that's what led to the COVID police state. Because what happened eventually, they realized big money said, look, we're bigger than governments. We don't need them anymore. And you had the corporatocracy set up, where literally, as we see with the the whole big pharma thing, why are all the politicians in the world all saying the same thing? You got to get the shot, right? Well, that's because they're, they're answering to the same mega corporation 
you know, and, and we, so I traced kind of the history of how that came about, you know, politically and economically. And, and, uh, it's amazing. I mean, one statistic too, the, the, the traditional power in the world in Europe and North America has gone right down the tube. The biggest economies now are in the Philippines, in Brazil, in Vietnam, China. Their growth rate is going through the ceiling. And do you know that two thirds of all the world production is now in the, the Indo-Pacific region, like the Indian Ocean, Southeast Asia, India. Like it's amazing. There's been this huge power shift in the world, right? And, and this isn't uh, about China. It's not an organic, organic uh, progression, right? This is this is a deliberate um, cultivation in, in that area for specific uh, geopolitical reasons, right? Right. Well, it, it has to do with China right. because that's their whole sphere of influence, and they are now kind of like where America was after World War II. Okay. England had declined. America was coming up. Same thing. America's going down. China's got. They own half of the American debt. They their military is about to outstrip the americans their gdp is twice the size now uh and russia is trying to play a balancing act right between the two so it's like what orwell predicted in 1984 it's come about you know the three power spheres um maintaining the illusion of war between each other to control their own populations and and the covid thing is is amazing it, it, it it's it could have been predicted decades ago that and in fact it was you know they said the one thing that people, people will most willingly surrender their rights over is a public health crisis. They've shown that over the years that, um, you can take away any rights people want and they'll agree with it. If you say they're going to die from a health hazard, otherwise a super bug, right? So, um, you know, it, it's not at all surprising what's going on. The problem is people are looking at only one scale of the dragon, you know, uh, rather than the whole beast. And that's what I try to do in the book. And, and this COVID uh, narrative is uh, covering up for uh, a massive collapse of economic uh, confidence. Right? I, I heard a, a quote just the other day that it's it's uh, the, the global economy is, is a sort of zombie phantom being on a life support machine since the 2008 credit crunch crash, and that you know over over that time since the Second World War. The distance from any kind of material reference point of economies is distancing again and again and again as this, uh, this illusory shell, uh, you know, disintegrates before us. So the COVID state had to come in to, uh, bring about that emergency situation to maintain that centralized corporate power that's, you know, economically about to nosedive, um, you know, disintegrate, right? Yes. And, you know, in fact, every time a crash happens like that, it's deliberate. Like uh, people are saying, why are the government uh, like in Canada, for example, all the businesses were closed. So the government starts subsidizing people not to go to work. Um, so why are they deliberately bankrupting the country? Because it's creating a huge debt. Well, that's so that China can buy up the whole place quickly, but not just China. Depressions traditionally in the whole history of capitalism going back 300 years. Depressions are deliberately created so that the smaller businesses die and the bigger ones can grab them up. That's how they sustain their system. So the system keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, fewer and fewer people controlling everything, right? And right. You, uh, you, there's no... You, you pump currency into the... Uh, with a boom time, you, you pump the currency into the system, uh, right. irrigate the, the land, if you like, and then 
all this uh, illusory mathematics is swishing around. Then you turn the taps off and you say, right, you're in debt, everybody. And because you can't pay back the debt, because you borrowed too much or whatever, because there's, there's no, we turn the taps off and there's no economic sustenance left. So we'll take all your real world assets. It's an asset grab, right? Right. And that, and that's what the whole Keynesian welfare state economy did. It, uh, it would step in when the system was failing and artificially sustain it. Keep up demand, keep up consumerism. So the goods you can, because traditionally capitalism tended to have their crashes because there was overproduction. They produced too many goods and people couldn't buy them. And so you had a slump, unemployment, inflation, all that. Right. But now after the war, it was sustained by a huge global arms economy. Right. That's why all these wars were happening, like in Vietnam and that, because you would take that excess capital that would have fueled the recession and pump it into arms. Cause think they're always being used up. It's a constant demand. But that stopped working by the time of the 80s and 90s because the system was just getting too huge. So they needed to think in mega terms and governments don't exist anymore. We see that it's all a reflection of the big mega corporations. So one day there'll be that one day quite soon. There'll be this the mega corporation that everybody works for. And that's what they're conditioning. The COVID is a Trojan horse right. to get everybody in that state of mind. Then they'll stop the uh, the COVID measures, but people will be little components of that machine and they won't have to worry anymore. So that's obviously the game plan. Uh, but people are thinking in all terms, like how do we go back to our quote freedoms, right? I mean, it's part of the illusion. And, and part of the illusion is, I was listening to a guy talking about Australia today, but I think this translates all over the world, that the uh, the governments, I think it was mid seventies with Australia, uh, have Sign the papers to become corporations, right? As with police forces, as with law courts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That these, these corporate, um, chameleons are masquerading as previous nation states, right? Right. Exactly. So, I mean, you have to see through the, the, the camouflage to what's really going on and to understand the nature of what we're in. I mean, that's philosophically, that's how you begin with anything about your life. You have to know the nature of who you are and what you're in. Otherwise, you, you never get clarity about anything. So that's anyway, that's what I tried to do in that first book um, and weave it into the events of my own life to almost illustrate. Like, you know, for example, when I was fired by the United Church in 1995, what it initially prompted, it wasn't about native residential schools. It's because I found out about the church grabbing land. Uh, from the natives and then selling it off to these big logging companies, right? But right at the same time, the logging company that had been responsible for the land grab that I notified the church about, that I learned about, they had been going through a huge slump in the economy and they were a wirehouse of the U.S. multinational, the largest logging company in the world, did spot up this British Columbia company using native land that I found out about. So I had to be gotten rid of because it was a $2 billion deal to consolidate the logging industry along the lines we're talking about. So, in fact, I was part of that bigger drama of what we're discussing, the the, the growth of the mega corporations. Right? So anyway, that's what I talk about in there. So, so in terms of uh, consolidating and centralizing this power globally, you're saying that the 80s was uh, a boom and bust stage to basically shake it up. And, and then the 90s was that that uh, sort of gelling together. Well, the 80s, if you remember, yes, uh, Reagan and Thatcher, their whole thing was they were trying to revive the Cold War. 
they were trying to, you know, Reagan got in on extreme paranoia about the Soviet Union foreign policy uh, program, right? And Thatcher was kind of little mini me just echoing him all the time. But what they also did is they trashed the Keynesian welfare state and they had to fund the new arms race. And so they, they, that's when everything began privatizing what they call, right? Taking public assets and handing it over to a few people. What that was also doing though was brainwashing people to, to equate corporate interest with public interest for the first time. Uh, saying, you know, what's good for General Motors is good for all of you, right? And, uh, and so it was, Starting to make the transition to the corporate uh, corporatocracy we're in now. It was, it, it isn't just economics in the abstract. You always have to condition the population to think along new terms, right? Over here, I remember it as, as a teenager. The um, the discourse concerning privatization and, and uh, public ownership was was a hot potato, if you like, and you know Thatcher particularly uh, was was the one initiating all these. Um, Private sector competition was was the big word, right? The buzzword. If if there's competition, it keeps everything, uh, you know, fresh and and uh, dynamic. I think was perhaps the word they used. Right. And so they were basically selling off everything that the nation state owned into these yeah, like, uh, corporate power. And and then then you've got you know issues of, of constitution that uh, they got corporate policies, but that's got no uh, connection to representation of we the people right so they can do basically what they want because they're yeah they were creating uh, a new yeah they were taking the corporation and making it a power unto itself for the first time legally and politically they said the rights of companies supersede that of a nation or individuals so again it was that massive reconditioning of people like after world war ii my dad was saying you know suddenly literally in one month the big enemy became not germany anymore but russia and they were all this paranoia they had you know, uh, or all the 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 uh, determination to overthrow Nazi Germany suddenly was focused on Russia as the big enemy, right? And it happened so quickly, and yet everyone went along with it because the part of that thing that you see going on now, which is the group psychosis, and um, it, it you know it just transfers from one enemy to another, but it's the same process going on, right? Right. The, the group thinks the herd mentality, and so the media then overnight flick the uh, the the perceived enemy away from uh, a, a European uh, nation state because the overarching plan, right? You get into Albert Pike and the, and the, the, the letters he was writing as a grand master, master Freemason in the late 19th, 19th century, 1800s, mm. uh, shows us that the Orwellian idea of these continental blocks uh, had Germany and the rest of Europe very much in, in, a, in a European NATO, right? It was NATO. Right. So, so overnight, they had to flick the switch in, in the public perception that Germany was no longer, you know, a threat or an enemy. And that Uncle Joe Stalin, who'd been, you know, everybody's favorite uncle on the Eastern Front for so many years, was now right. a big villain, bogeyman for everyone to fear. That's right. And, you know, it's like with anything, you follow the money. And uh, like uh, my uh, one of my friends said the other day, well, it's like if you were a peasant in England around 15, 1600, you were losing all your traditional lands because the, the, the wealthy wanted to grow wool. It was the one, one commodity that England could outcompete everybody in. So they enclosed the land. These thousand year old rights of the people to have common land, the commons, uh, where you could graze and, and fish and everything together. Nobody owned it, but suddenly it's fenced off so that they, the local landowner could raise sheep 
And uh, that created incredible suffering and poverty, but it was deliberate because that people who were then thrown off their land, they went into the cities, they became the new industrial workforce. But if you were a peasant back then and you tried to resist that, it was almost hopeless because it's what the economic system was imposing on the whole world, right? It was a transition. And we're going through the same thing now. It's not like you shouldn't resist it, but you got to look at what's causing it historically. And the direction we're going is not back towards, you know, what we knew, due process, democracy. The system doesn't need that anymore. It needed industrial capitalism. It needed the, that front, that appearance of, of democracy, but it doesn't anymore. So there's no point having protests and petitions and elections and, and it's gone. It's just, it, it's, it doesn't exist anymore. We have to fight on an, in a new way and look at things in a new way, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, we, just this weekend, there's been an awful lot of, of marches, you know, particularly London. And, and you see it and you see this, you know, power base of people that are there, you know, the, 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 um, the state militia are absolutely swamped in terms of numbers and the ratio. But they all go home at the end of the day, and and uh, the objective is is nothing. There's there's nothing that's changed, apart from that sort of good feeling that there's lots of us, and you know, uh, we we all think the same, right? So so that herd mentality group thing, you know, we, we brought it up a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the biblical demon of legion uh, has its uh, pros and cons, right? <laughs> You're right. Now, all those half a million people or whatever were in London, okay? More, yeah. As long as they're thinking in the box, they might as well be five people. It doesn't right. really make any difference. They're, but they're it, still it, requesting. They're still requesting to the authorities. Right. They're asking for something. Um, and then they go back into their boxes. Now, if even 10 of those people thought in a different way and dis- detached mentally, their bodies would follow. You know, that old line from Platoon, free your mind, your ass will follow. I mean, once your awareness of the system is there and you pull out, if even if a hundred people in the crowd had started actively pulling, pulling their energy out, it would have achieved more in the system than those half a million protesting. So it's a matter of reaching all those people, organizing them locally, because that's where our, po- our power is in their neighborhoods, get 10, 20 of them together and start doing like we've, we've done all over the world now, set up your own assemblies, think outside the box. What are we going to create? What laws are we going to pass now? And their whole system collapses at that point, and they know it. So that's why, frankly, a lot of the, you know, when we talk about operatives and, and, and black ops and all that, they're the ones saying, come on, let's go protest. Come on, let's go, you know, do a petition because it keeps everyone's energy focused in the box and not in themselves and in their own communities, right? Right, they 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 know how to defend against that. Right, it, it was it was interesting, you know, the the, the pictures that you see, the the reels and the, the footage, you see a a small group of police and literally, you know, sees hundreds and you know, thousands of people swamping these police, and they've got their the batons on the shoulder, and you're thinking, wow, you know, if I was the commanding officer, or whatever, of of those police, I, I would never. With their best interests at heart, I would never put them in that situation, you know, where, where they're, you know, with their backs to the gates of, of parliament or 10 Downing Street where the prime minister's and, you know, basically leave them at the, at the mercy of a, of a huge, huge crowd. But then I'm thinking, oh, perhaps that's because if they did get, you know, kicked to the ground, then that would be great 
from the TV pictures perspective. You know, we'll, we'll sacrifice right. these cops for the for the footage for the the BBC News or whatever to say, look, right. violence at the protests. These awful, yeah, yeah. you know, members of the public have injured these these good upstanding policemen, and so you know now we've got to go and uh, you know persecute and well police state uh, the public more. Right? Sure, but when you look at the way revolutions happen, you know. Uh, those all those people in the crowd should have spoken to the police and said, "Take your uniform off. What? Take oh, disavow your oath of allegiance to the crown. Take it to our local republic assembly. You well, went over the police and the soldiers. That's when revolutions yeah. happen. Right. Well, thankfully, there, there seemed to be a couple of you know good good talkers there who who basically ushered them away. You know, go go and do your your police work elsewhere. <laughs> this ain't safe place for you. And so off they went. Right. Which which was a good you know right. merciful collusion. We don't want to discourage those gatherings. Every now and then, they're very necessary manifestations of look at our power. And we talked about this before. When you can see your power in a battle, you're strengthened. Your morale goes right up. If you can't, if you're isolated sitting there and you can't see who's around you, you give away your power. You lose. Your morale plummets. And we have to create those situations. But then we have to say, this is only step one. How do we take back the power for ourselves? Right. So, so a question that I had was, you know, is it, is it even necessary to, you know, get into the Houses of Parliament? You know, do, do we need that building and those offices with which no. to get to the next stage of, of, of where we're going, right? They don't have power anyway. We, we, we don't need those buildings, right? We, we, we can do them, you know, in Milton Keynes or something. <laughs> well, I remember, uh, when Tony Benn, you know, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer under Labour at one point. He said, as soon as I got into office, I got a call from a representative of the International Monetary Fund. And he said, now that you're in office as a labor government, uh, here's what you're going to do. And he had to do it. I mean, you know, the, the banksters, they determined. So, I mean, they're just the, the the front of the, and we all know that now. People know that, right? But they still kind of spasmodically go through the conditioned response and marking a ballot because that's all they know, right? But again, that's programming. And and it's the hardest thing in the world to consciously break from your programming unless you have an alternative that people can belong to. And it's building that alternative that's a challenge now because every time we try to make that step, you get this wall of resistance from people. And that's why the enemy isn't out there. Just look in the mirror, people. What's holding us back, right? It's, it's that programming of, of needing to be under authority, right? We've said this before, but you're looking for leadership from the age of four years old, five years old at primary school. We're conditioned and programmed to do as we're told to obey the authority yeah. figure. Yeah. So I don't know if you catch this kind of news, but there was also a by-election very recently where, you know, one constituency does a little election to see whether, you know, they're going to stick with their party political representative or, or change. So that's controlling the narrative, right? There's all this, you know, swell of, of rebellion in the air. But the, the news is saying, oh, have a little look over here. You know, we've got a little party right. debate going on. Is it going to be the Conservatives? Is it going to be Labour? You know, what's going to happen? And it, and it draws everybody's attention back into yeah. that old sort of systemic way. And the other little thing happening over here is is that Boris Johnson had a party last year when there was, you know, lockdown, which is basically, again, predictive programming, conditioning, saying, hey, everybody, you're not allowed to have parties. But everybody's saying, oh, Boris broke the rules. So this is, um, you know, cult of personality uh, aspect to the to, to how the news is, is drawing people in, you know, that 
throw the popcorn back and and look at the the villains you know being naughty and and we can scream at them how vile they are or whatever but which completely sure. deflects away from you know the the enormous global issue that's going on where you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of people are being uh mass murdered via medical um malpractice well, again, far too generous of phrase again it's nothing new I mean, you know, it's like working with native people has always been so, it was like my trip to Greece when I was a teenager. You enter another world and they say, well, they've been shoving needles on arms for 150 years in Canada under the Indian Act. You can't refuse a, an injection or you go to jail. What's new about this? He said, now you're all on the Indian reservation, right? Welcome. Um, and it's interesting because you couldn't get off the reserve without a special pass, like the quote vaccine passports. It's like, it's just the same old program being now. Re, re, reissued. But what is strange, and we've talked about this before, is why are they so overconfident, the people behind the whole COVID thing, that they're, they're shooting themselves through the head by doing this because they're alienating massive numbers of people. And you never do that. You don't rule by making a lot of enemies, but by hitting people selectively targeted groups like Indians, you know, you can take them out because nobody cares about them. Right. But now everybody is, you know, including cops are expected to get this shot. So, you know, all that's doing is creating a massive opposition. And yet they're not worried about that. Apparently why? Okay. That's the question. Um, they are confident that their technology will so control people. It's minds that they don't have to worry about that anymore. And so to me, the question is, is that true or isn't, is that just a, uh, a black op idea they planted to keep people afraid, or is it the reality that people's minds are too controlled now for there to be any kind of real resistance? Question. Yeah, yeah well, the, the research does point to this um, artificial intelligence hive mind control via these um, technologies that are being injected into us, right? So, you know, this is it's a really interesting question. But on the other hand, you know, some too, right? When, when, you're, when you're backs to the wall, act confident and, and talk brash, right? You have to fight. You don't ever push anybody's back to the wall. And you see that all over, right? It's reflected in the number of people who are in that London protest, right? If they're all mind controlled, what are they doing out there? Right. right? You, you kind of look at the hard evidence all the time and not what you're reading on the Internet. The hard evidence is they're not controlled or they wouldn't be. They'd be too afraid to protest. They'd all be sitting in front of their little computers and five people would show up at the protest. But that's not what's going on. Yeah. So look at the evidence. It shows, in fact, they don't have things under control. Right. And there seems to be a, an inverse uh, flip, if you like, with regards to, you know, previously, historically, they've sat back quite benignly and, and waited for, for attacks on them. And then they can say, oh, look at the violence, look at the, uh, the bad behavior by those guys. But that seems to have flipped around now. And, and they're doing the, the, the aggressor role and outing themselves and uh, re revealing, you know, losing their, their aspect of concealment and so it's easier for for those people who see through it all to point out to people who are unsure what's going on you know what what's going on like here's the evidence here's the data they're yeah. they're doing the offensive they're, they're rolling out their um their tyrannical aggressive uh offensive and you know it's so much easier to see right well yeah and that's true generally now the thing is when you say they are rolling out the offensive. No, we all are. We are all causing it. That's that's the first thing about self-activation is you realize nothing's been done to me ever. 
we have created this whole system. All of us have our labor, our taxes, our looking the other way, whatever. And that's why you always go. It's like in the Titanic, you go to the bottom of decks to see what's really going on, not the top decks, right? After the iceberg hits, you know, where the flooding is by going the furthest down. And that's why working, that was my advantage over the years, working with people really on the outs and marginalized. You could see the trend of what's going to eventually affect everyone. And, um, Everyone is responsible for what's going on now. Once you take ownership of that and say, yeah, you can then pull out. But if you're always the victim, you have no power. You can always, you always have to ask for somebody. And that's why it isn't just conditioning. It's how we see ourselves as being acted on or whether now we are going to act. But to act, you have to own what you've done. You have to take responsibility and rights are easy. Responsibility isn't right. So, so you're, you're saying that in terms of we've, uh, we've paid our taxes in and we've, you know, benignly allowed it to, to get to where it's got to. But in terms of... Not even benignly, frankly. We all know that when we buy stuff, what is that stuff on the shelf? How, where is, how does it get there? We are part of a blood-soaked system that's been that way from the beginning. Right? 100% agree. But, yeah. but, but the differentiation I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about here is that you know, the, the, the economy is, is in free fall and got a, there's a, our adversaries in a, in, a, in a war, right? our enemies, our, our opponents... Are making plays, if you like, or, or, or initiatives that we can identify, and and, right. and, and so that that's um, you know chess game, if you like, is w- w- seems to me to be coming to an end game, and, and where um, or, or their hand is being forced because of their uh, desperate situation. Is that a fair enough word? Well, it, yeah, it's a. Uh... They're deliberately crashing the system to create what they think is going to be their absolute system that won't ever crash. They want to create this monolith that is not subject to the traditional fluctuations of their economic system, right? The mega corporation. But the problem is they don't understand. You see, they're, they're, they're like Bill Gates. They're technocrats. They're thinking in very artificial terms. In nature, the more you get rid of diversity, the more unstable the system becomes. Diversity is there genetically and in evolution and in nature as a, as a stabilizing so that if one part dies, the other can pick it up. So you need massive diversity in nature. That's what keep, has kept us around for you know hundreds of millions of years. But what they're doing is abolishing diversity. They're creating one monolithic system, and that's more prone to disaster. It's more liable to crush. And when it does, everything comes down because you don't have, like during the Depression in the 1930s, often the South Sea Islands, they weren't suffering at all because they weren't part of the market economy. But if you plug everybody into that system and when it goes down, because nothing is immortal, right? When it crashes, everything will die. And it's almost like we talked about this before, this death wish in the system, right? Okay. Why would you create a system so monolithic that when it crashes, it takes the whole planet with it? It's because it's not just the logic of the system playing out. It's this death wish. People in the system don't really want it anymore, but they're too trapped by it, especially if you're at the top. The more you're in, in charge, the more trapped you are mentally by it. It's only the people on the margins and on the bottom who have the freedom to create something different. Um, and, and that's why we always look to them, not the status quo and the people in charge, right? So I think it's part of that whole suicidal complex raging at the high levels of the system, right? And, and those high levels of the system are, are occupied by uh, people in yeah. post who have a lot of fear of falling, right? Of paranoia that, you know, they, they've got to maintain their position, maintain their control because they don't want to be 
you know, down in, in the gutter. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they like their inflated, uh, lofty um, position. Yeah. That's right. So because of the ancient uh, construction of, of this control grid, whereby people are subservient because of um, money, perhaps, but, but also uh, in, incrimination, right? When, when you look at these, these cults, you know, the Ninth Circle, et cetera, et cetera, people can't be disloyal or, or they can't break ranks. Otherwise, you know, things get very bad very quickly for them. And, and, that, and that, that structure of, of power that's becoming, like you say, an enormous global monolith is also very, very brittle. And, and as these um, emergency measures, if you like, are being um, uncovered and revealed for what, for what they really are, the brittleness of that enormous pyramid uh, you know, starts breaking up, starts uh, fragmenting, shall we say, right. which I feel like is a, a, a very healthy thing. But it, but it leaves that uh, individual psyche bereft, we've mentioned this before, bereft yeah. of, of an identity as a, a worker bee or a drone or, or you know, whatever, whatever phrase right. you, you want. Now that's important because people are essentially lost these days. When you talk to them, it's not about fear of masking or disease. They have no identity. Like the third most common cause of death in the world is suicide, especially among people 18 to 30. Now that's phenomenal. Yeah. People at the peak of their youth yeah. When they are normally optimistic, all want to kill themselves. That's because we live in this corporate system that doesn't imply, doesn't have meaning anymore. And there's an essential crisis here of uh, human identity. And what is our meaning? Why are we alive? Because it's, it's, it's materialism, right? So if, if the, if the yeah, money's drying up and, and, you know, the economy is, is falling away, you, you can't, you can't have that car or, or that, you know, yeah, but that, none of that matters. The cars, you see, because it doesn't matter. If, if you have no meaning behind it, if, you know, traditional societies gave you meaning. That's why like, uh, Hutterite colonies, they have the lowest, uh, level of mental illness of any society in history. And because they all belong, they have belonging, they have meaning, they have a trade, they, they can contribute. You don't have that in the modern corporate world. There is no meaning. It's just you, it's like my grandfather's song from World War One. We're here because we're here because we're here because we're here. Like there is no meaning. We're just cogs in a machine. It's been, we've been created that way and we, we see our identity that way, but it's a dead end. We have to create new meaning and you can't do it in the present system. So it's supposed to come down so we re can recover the human soul. Basically. Right. And, and we can, we can escape the incarceration of this materialist third dimensional yes. world. Right? So people are obsessed with the, the materialistic aspects. And if they haven't got that, then, then that's the identity problem, right? They, they, you know, they, they've got this identity well, crisis because they aren't able to live, you know, with, with money, right? And, and get all those yeah. trappings to present as, as something that's worth something. But, but this is a very healthy thing. It's a clearing, you know, healing remedy it because but it's, it's, it's inviting people to have a, a, a little think about, you know, what, what you just mentioned that there's, right. there's a far more wholesome and, um, uh, value, valuable, uh, yeah, but aspect to, to life here. Yeah, but nobody's going to see that. With, you know, it's like friends I have, they say, help me see. And I said, you can't see in the box. You got to get out of the box first, but it's a wrenching process. It feels like you're dying, right? And people run back into slavery so they don't have to have that, that death. But it is a death experience. You're going to die to a lot of what you know and go through horrible pain and dark night of the soul 
then at the other end, you're going to find yourself again. And that's what we have to encourage in people, right? This is the, the classic metaphor of the, the butterfly in the, in the popcorn. No, in the cocoon. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mixing metaphor. Well, and, and that actually leads to my second book. Okay. Mind if I talk about it? Sure, yeah. Go for um, it. Okay, so, you know, as you know, over the, or, or many great interviews, um, I, there's this massive history and it's hard to just impart it as facts to people like, you know, about genocide and, and all of this stuff. It, so what I did is I put it in novel form, right? And I wrote a novel based on my own family and it's, it, it deals with the past, the present and a possible future. And it's called Land of Liberty. And, um, it's about, it starts in the past with the attempted rebellion in Canada in 1837 to overthrow the British crown. And my, my, uh, great, great, great grandfather, Philip took part in it. And it's about Philip and his father, Robert. Now, Robert, they came to Canada because his father, Robert had fought at Waterloo. He was a British army officer in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. And, um, he got all this free land in Canada. And so they immigrated. Now, ironically, his son, Philip here, then takes arms as a young man to overthrow the British crown as part of what was called the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. It took place in Quebec and Ontario. So and just, it was a revolution. Just, just, just to summarize that point, dad was part of the conquistador colonization uh, as a Welsh fusilier no. taking the land. And then son was the revolutionary opposite. No, uh, yeah. Well, Robert Annett was in England. They live in Frome in Wiltshire was the name oh, of the, yeah, the little well. town near Bristol. Yeah. Beautiful old place. Uh, they lived there. He took, he, uh, got a, our officer commission, fought at Waterloo and then was as a retired officer, went to Canada with his whole family. They had like 13 kids and Philip was the oldest son. And, um, yeah. So he was part of that imperial tradition. And in, in the novel, I actually have a conflict. Robert lives on a farm right next to Philip uh, in southern Ontario, near, uh, it's called Watford now. It's near uh, Sarnia and kind of near the American border. And um, they have a conflict because when, when the rebellion happens, Robert is against it. And yet he has a family loyalty to his son because the country is run by what's called the family compact. It's a few Anglican bishops crown uh, appointees and bankers, and they're running the whole country, just like now. But they call themselves the Family Compact. And and Mackenzie, who was William Lyon Mackenzie, who led the rebellion in English Canada, and people like my great-great-great-grandfather, Philip, they said, no, we need to get rid of the Family Compact. We need a republic like in America. And they were called, you know, all sorts of nasty names for doing that. There was a similar movement in Quebec under a guy called Papineau, and they almost overthrew the British, but it failed. And a lot of them got hanged. Fortunately, my, my ancestor didn't. But it talks about that and how it led to today. And it's set up in Canada after the rebellion. They brought in this, this you know, dictatorship of uh, crown and, and church that ran everything. That's why they had these residential schools. And, and the church had such power because of that feudal system they froze in place. And it led to what's now causing the Republic movement. And in the future part of the book, I talk about, okay, we had a revolution, the Republic finally won. Now we've got to deal with this corporatocracy that's running the world. And so it's kind of like the Republic versus the mega corporation. It, that's what the novel's all about. And I had so much fun writing it because I wanted to bring to life the human aspect, not just the, the dull facts of, you know, mass murder and all that, but how it played out at a family level. Okay. And 
within my own family, the, the, the legends we always heard about Philip and, you know, the family's still divided over whether that should have happened or not. But, but anyway, that was the purpose in, in writing Land of Liberty, which you can get on, on Amazon and through me. Well, big, big book. How many pages? Well, I've edited down. It's about 550 now. Okay. So it's like full novel length. And this is on Ontario, right? So, for, for, from a geographical perspective, that's is that uh, Prairie Plains? No, it's Eastern Canada. Okay. Um, so in, in the, right above kind of New York, you've got Quebec and Ontario. Okay. And uh, and so, yeah, it took place in both provinces, although they were called Lower Canada back then. That's Quebec, and Upper Canada was the English area, Ontario. And one thing I've I've always wondered. So the the USA has has gone full independence um, end of the 1700s, and and then Canada's you know got this whole British Crown uh, affiliation connection going on. Is is that border very porous? Are there a lot of people passing back and forth? Oh yeah, traditionally, right. traditionally uh, it's the longest border in the world, right, between the US and Canada. So it's it's. And, and it's funny the way the culture is. There's there's an east coast. It doesn't go horizontal. The culture in North America is vertical. So you've got a west coast culture, a very California. It's the same one British Columbia. You've got a prairie culture. Farmers in Texas are very much like farmers where I grew up in Manitoba. And then you've got the New York kind of cosmopolitan east coast culture that embraces both Canada and the U.S. So that's the reflection that when you look at the speech patterns in English, you know, uh, it really common. Across North America, it isn't, there isn't really a Canada and the United States in that sense. Those are just artificial boundaries. And same with the native people. Same with the native nations span the borders all over the place, right? Well, often these borders are specifically put in place to, um, divide tribes, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. That was the case with the Mohawks and everybody. Yeah. And so when, when you've got this, um, Difference of regime between uh, the, the the Canadian Crown Commonwealth um, infrastructure, and, and you've got the the much more um, pioneering American Constitution. Is is there a sort of suspicion from the USA that oh Canada's a Crown uh, state? And, and, you know, perhaps we're, we're looking at being, um, you know, infiltrated from the north. Right. Well, being half American, my dad's from New Jersey. And so I've, 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 I've had a binational culture my whole life. So I see this really clearly. Uh, your average American in, in a lot of areas are very suspicious of Canadians for that okay. reason. Uh, because, you know, they're like, they don't like the British monarch. This whole idea that one person can tell you what to do just goes against the American grain, right? The traditional yeah. American culture, right? Uh, well, well, the whole yeah, thing about so, the Second Amendment with, with the guns, right, is because the oh, yeah. uh, the Redcoats attempted to take the, the weapons away from the um, the Patriots prior to attacking them, right? So the, the guns is, is a throwback from the, the British uh, offensive, right? Well, back then, it wasn't just to take their guns because everybody was a farmer back then. You needed a gun to survive. If you take away the guns, you starve to death. How are you going to hunt? Right? How are you going to defend your farm? So it's a very powerful image to an American. But in Canada, there's a smug, oh, those, they're all rednecks wanting to go out and shoot their AK-47 at deer, right? But I mean, that isn't, that isn't the issue. Uh, 
Because Canadians say, well, we don't need guns. The government will take care of us and protect us, won't they? You know, that's a very English-Canadian attitude. But again, Quebec is very different. It's more European-French kind of like attitude, right? Okay. Uh, In terms of the the French Revolution, uh, Soviet authority, right? And and then from from that perspective, then, um, after the Napoleonic Wars, you know, the end of the 1700s, the Age of Revolution, if you like, and then there's there's a real kind of paranoia, um, hardline lockdown in in Canada. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if you know a film called Peterloo. Uh, you know, to talk about the the, the family uh, history aspect, and it follows a a young soldier from Manchester who comes back from you know the the Napoleonic Wars uh, to Manchester, and you see how this this brave guy who's you know been fighting for the for the flag, if you like, of England. Is then sees how, you know, on a, on a, at a local level, this complete, you know, persecution and, and, and then also a, a massacre at this, uh, the Peterloo Rally. massacre. Yeah. The Peterloo massacre. 1819. Yeah. Peter Field right, is, is the kind yeah. of name switches to, to to match the water there. And, and, and basically the, the hardline authorities, uh, were doing exactly what the, the French, uh, revolted against, right? and so this kid has gone and fought against the French, who were, uh, you know, trying to stand up for we the people. And then he goes back home and gets smashed by exactly those same kind of uh, powers and forces that. You no, know, and all the I remember last time I was in Manchester. There's a big in one of the halls there. They have a big uh, mosaic showing that, like, these were just poor families that wanted the right to vote, and they had a big rally. And the, the yeomanry showed up and the cavalry and just chopped them to pieces and killed 200 of them, right? Just because they wanted the right to vote. And, uh, that kind of thing went on all the time. Yeah. On both sides of the Atlantic, right? Cause it was, it was seen, it was kind of like the French Revolution. Then we've seen the way, uh, a virus is now or, or, you know, uh, the communist scare in the 1950s and all that. It was like this evil thing trying to come in. People shouldn't vote. Uh, or the rulers know what's best for them. It was that whole paternalistic attitude and still like what you get in Canada today, right? And Britain and other places, right? I, f- I feel like there's, there's an interesting, um, sort of parody, uh, metaphor, if like with this whole narrative of, uh, trying to expel, uh, <laughs> a pathogen or, or, a, you know, a, a, a virus from society. And, and yeah, I think, you know, as, as below, as above, as above, so below, what we're seeing from a societal level is almost like, you know, excuse the, uh, <laughs> the analogy, but squeezing that zit, right? We, we, we're trying to excrete, uh, societally this, this tumor that's been, you know, locked into mm. our, our psyches and our, um, societies for, for since antiquity that is mirroring this whole hoax COVID narrative, right? Well, you know, that's a very apt metaphor because that's exactly within us individually and as a society, there's a poison and it has to come out. And yet we're fighting it coming out. And, it, and in one of the passages in, in this novel, my novel, uh, my ancestor, Philip, his wife, Sarah, befriends a local Chippewa native woman. And they're being wiped out. The crown is sending out uh cavalry to burn out and kill all the Chippewa and burn out their villages to get their land for this thing called the Canada Company, which is a big monopoly, right? 
and uh, the farmers and the natives are all being targeted. So she uh, uh, befriends this woman, Gizi, uh, Chippewa woman, and Chip, the Gizi says to her, um, you people are sick. You've lost your animal spirit. And Sarah says, what's an animal spirit? She said, you left it back across the waters. It's the land you come from. There's an animal guide who tells you the truth and keeps you sane. And and you, uh, Mukaman, which is the chipper word, word for a white man, it means a, th- a thief who comes in and grabs everything. Uh, you Mukaman are crazy. You're going to go crazy and kill yourselves. And our prophecy says we have to move west to get away from you because you're all going to destroy yourselves. And then we can come back to our land. And I hear that prophecy all over the native world. The traditional is like, look, you just sit back because you people are going to destroy yourselves. The important thing for us now is to get out of the sick system, if at all possible, and build something different. But if we carry the sickness here with us, we're just going to replicate it. So we got to really get cured inside. And you do that on the land. You do that back at your roots, you know, with Mother Earth. You don't do that through the Internet or medication, right? You hear as well this this uh, word, I think it's from North America, uh, Wittico, Wittico, which seems to me to be um, a different way of saying psychopathy. And, and so that, that, that idea that, you know, our, our immune systems are being turned against ourselves is, is happening on a, on a global scale, right? So, so that, that's, um, unearthing of these, um, these power networks that are very clandestine and, and covert yeah. and stealthily operating is, is getting, um, the treatment to get it getting, uh, revealed and, and busted by, by, by the global population. And, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a cleansing excretion process. Right? We always think, and I, I had bad experience of this as a minister, being a minister too long, because I always want to think in terms of give an alternative for people, give them a way out. But, you know, the reality is we might be literally the bad guys and our time has come and we do have to come down. Right. And I'm not so much concerned about personal, you know, security or, or, you know, because it helps when you're in your 60s. You don't worry about that as much. But I mean, in terms of our whole society, it has to come down and this could be a way it, it happens. And whether or not we come out the other end, I don't know. Maybe that's not our fate, but we are in a group psychosis right now, uh, exactly like Nazi Germany. And it, it's not rational. It can't be thought or we can't get out of it by using that means by which we got into it. That's that that old saying that you've got to be recreated before you can create the new. And any way we can do that, I think, is what we have to do. Just don't think in terms of the old psychosis. Just go inside the source of everything. You know, it's within us and our connection to the eternal. And that's our, our you know, if there is a way out for us, and I don't know if there is, but if there is, it's got to go that way to get outside their, their group mod, which is sick and dying. Right. Not already dead. One, one of the one of the big uh, tumors or kernels of uh, of malaise is is that that Catholic Church corporation, the Vatican corporation, right? and and you know I'm really keen to get a, an update before we close on um, right. you know the you mentioned there was I think it was twelve you said uh, churches that had been burned in in North America, more. Uh, on, and and. You know, that, that cleansing of, of this spiritual, uh, pathology, uh, out of, you know, the, the, the group, um, spirituality is, has got to be a, a big healing aspect to the, the whole world, right? It's collectively. 
how's how's that developing? I I remember you saying that um, the Pope was going to come to Canada, then he changed his mind, then some apples were going to go over Rome, and then that changed his mind. And the latest thing I heard is the Pope's dying, <laughs> which I don't think I believe. No, well, that's a, that, whenever you hear that, it's a media cover story to cover right. something they don't want you to see. Um, no, I don't think in terms of healing anymore. I, like I say, it's coming down. I don't think it should be healed. But um, the um, the thing that's happened, it's really funny, actually. Um First, Bergoglio was going to come to Canada to do his usual apology thing, right? And then we we told the Catholic bishops, he'll be arrested and you guys will be arrested because this is a death camp he's going to in Kamloops. And we've got more and more of the evidence of that. And we're going to arrest him. They then back off. The Catholic bishops say to him, no, we don't want think you should come right now. But he continues, you know, and so he invites all these native puppet chiefs to Rome. Right. And then their own elders tell them, if you go to Rome, don't bother coming back because you can't come back. Under your, you're not part of your own nation anymore. We're going to expel you. So they cancel under the guise of, well, we're concerned about the COVID threat going around like since when, right? <laughs> um, and so they, and then Bergoglio's got egg all over his face. So he responds by putting the whole story into media lockdown and uh, basically going into damage control and doing his usual kind of, you know, media PR opportunities to make it look like everything is fine, you know, back in Rome. But the reality is they're in major crisis and there's a new faction that's formed, we've learned, that's probably going to depose him. And like Ratzinger, don't forget, Ratzinger stepped down because of health issues. I mean, it'll be another health issue for Bergoglio, right? It's the simplest lie to tell, but, and you can't prove it one way or the other, right? But, um, but no, there, there's another palace coup in the works. But it, 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 the bigger thing is that they're shifting their allegiance east to China. That's why Biden went and kissed the guy's ass in Rome to try to keep him in the Western sphere. But it's part of that bigger global thing we talked about earlier, right? Uh, yeah, right. So, so that big corporate monolith that we talked about earlier, it, it, does it, does it need the Vatican or, or, or can the Vatican be, yeah. as we spoke about the other day, you know, cut away to the Deadwoods, jettisoned to, to clear yeah, the decks? The Vatican does two things. It's a big financial clearinghouse. Lots of the world's money goes through the Bank for International Settlements in Geneva and the Vatican Bank. They're the two repositories of a lot of the world money. So the Chinese want that. Obviously, they, they just get those assets moved east, basically, or into their network in the, in the Indo-Pacific region where all the economic growth is happening. But the second thing the Vatican does is mind control on a big chunk of the world's population. And they put a, it's like, why do you keep monarchs around? Well, because you got to keep conditioning in people that there's somebody more important than you, that they have authority, that that uh, birth alone can confer authority, that a position in, in on a throne gives them authority over somebody, and that's very important to maintaining the global slave, you know, population, their mentality. So, for both those reasons, they're not going to get rid of it. Only we can do that. <laughs> I agree. I'm sure there's a bit of a dilemma as to you know if if we if we jettison and get rid of. Uh, you know, royalty or, or, or the papal um, hierarchy, then that would stimulate more of a wake up as to, you know, the change that is in, the potential for change and, and uh, a, a global shakeup. So, you know, they, they perhaps want to keep the, um, the status quo as steady as possible yeah. to avoid that, you know, that, that shake up, wake up. Right, because then you take that away, it creates a vacuum, and nature abhors a vacuum, right. so do human beings. We'll move into it and set up our own stuff. So they always have to keep the lid on everything, or at least create the appearance that they are, and rely on people's fear and ignorance, which is the only way they really rule them. 
but there's there's revolts in the ranks. I, I watched uh, Mughal, Mughal added at the end of this uh, video, but there was a yeah. really interesting nun, you know, very uh, sort of senior, probably in her seventy eighties, and you know, she had a really uh, high tech microphone, but still in you know traditional black and white, and uh, she was she was laying into you know, the the hierarchical system of her church, right? So so it seems they're um, they're, they're cracking, right? Breaking apart. Well, it's about growing up. It's about saying goodbye to mom and dad and moving out and, and becoming self-governing and self-responsible. But that's a big, but that's a big task to take on people. It, it's a lot more work. It's like working on a farm. It's backbreaking work every day. So is reclaiming your liberty, but it's, it's the only way to go now. It's that or death, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it really is high stakes now. Again, now. Okay. Plus the hour, Kev. Should we, should we call this? This has been uh, wonderful. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Really and thanks yeah. from Philip. No. Yes, and, and can you show us the two books again just before we close? Let's, let's uh, see the two covers. Yeah. Uh, Memoirs of a Revolutionary and Land of Liberty. And so you can get both Amazon or, or through me, Angel Fire 101 at Proton Mail. So Land of Liberty is, is the, the novel, uh, historical novel from the 1800s. And the memoirs is the 1970s, 50 years through. That's right. Kind of global political economy. And so, yeah, they, they should be read together. Good Christmas gift. Yeah. Wow. Well, you've been busy. How, how long did it take to put those together? Oh, I've been working on the novel for several months. And this one came about, I had a lot of, it's like with the genocide evidence, I had a lot of stuff already on it. But yeah, this year, those are my two works this year. And, and that's your first novel. You, you haven't written a novel before. No, I wrote another one years ago, but it's the first major novel. Yeah. Because I, I, th- I think you're a terrific writer. I, I hats off and 100% respect your, your your research talents. But but I also think you, you turn a phrase. You know, I studied a bit of literature and, and taught English for a while, and I, I think you're right up there with uh, with the, with the, um, <laughs> the the literary talents of the of the world. He's terrific. Uh, well, thanks, Aging writers in the family. Okay. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to question Cheers, Kev. Uh, thanks a lot. For this. Been great. Uh, I we'll think we're then. Now we're steady. Are we? The base, I suppose. Okay. Keep, keep it going. Cheers. Cheers.